Archaeology is often viewed as a fascinating, eclectic, yet ultimately quaint pursuit. This program explores archaeology from the perspective of professionals who demonstrate that in the 21st century, archaeology and its sub-disciplines may hold the key, not only to our past, but to our present and future. Welcome to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with your host, Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Spend the next hour exploring where we came from and where we're headed with a leading researcher and practitioner in the field. Now, here is Dr. Schuldenrein. Good evening, this is Joe Schuldenrein, and our program is Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. I'm pleased to have you in for this particular episode in which we will be discussing archaeological curation, which is not a topic that's often widely discussed in uh, standard archaeological venues for the public, but it's a topic that is intriguing. We often wonder what happens to the artifacts once they are out of the ground, uh, where do they go, who examines them, and uh, where do they ultimately end up. And so that's a question that has uh, a lot of specialists in the field, very, very engaged in these uh, in the past few years. And we thought we would devote a major episode to that particular area since, again, as I said, it's not often discussed. And with me to examine these particular questions are three professionals who are involved in the question of archaeological curation. I am pleased to introduce uh, Danielle Benden, who has served as the curator of anthropology at the University of Wisconsin, where she manages the anthropological collections, teaches archaeological curation methods, and conducts research. Daniel's current research focuses on the presence of American bottom people in southwestern Wisconsin just prior to the fluorescence of the Cahokia site, which we discussed uh, way back in one of our uh, earlier episodes. Uh, Danielle's master's project at the University of Colorado was a modified business plan for developing new archaeological repositories across the United States to ease the pressure of the curation crisis. Uh, we'll get into that as we progress. Her interests in cu- include curation regulations and how they relate to cultural resource management, uh, the permitting process, developing new facilities in Wisconsin where she works, and rehabilitating the anthropological uh, collections themselves. My second guest, uh, Chris Pulliam, has worked for the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers St. Louis District for the past 20 years on a variety of archaeological curation-related pro- projects, and currently he's the assistant director of the Corps' mandatory center of expertise for the curation and management of archaeological collections in St. Louis. Uh, in that role, Chris provides oversight for the Corps' nationwide program to comply with federal curation regulations. He addresses the reported requirements for the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act, and he operates the Veteran Curation Project, which we have discussed also in the past as a key vehicle for employing uh, veterans uh, in the productive uh, disposition and conservation of artifacts associated with some of the older excavations. Finally, my third guest is Frank McManaman, who is the Executive Director of Digital Antiquity, 
an Arizona State University center devoted to improving access to and availability of archaeological data and documents. Before joining Digital Antiquity in 2009, Dr. McManaman was the chief archaeologist of the National Park Service and the departmental conducting, consulting archaeologist for the Department of the Interior in Washington, D.C. Frank was involved in the development of policy, regulation, and guidance for public archaeology uh, throughout the government. Uh, Dr. McManaman has provided technical assistance to the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers and the Department of Justice on the Kennewick Man case and to the General Services Administration on the New York City African American, African uh, Burial Ground Project. He's also served as an expert member of the United States delegation to UNESCO negotiations on illegal artifact trafficking and the protection of underwater archaeological research. I want to thank you all for appearing on the show, and it's my pleasure to have you here. Thank you, Joe. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Good. So let's get down to basics here and uh, acquaint our listenership with the issues of archaeological curation. And Chris, let me get you started here. And why don't you break down what is being discussed and what we mean by archaeological curation? Okay. Um, Well, the term encompasses a a range of activities archaeological curation uh, does um, that are necessary to, you know, to care for artifacts and records. Um, Records are a lot of the times the things that we kind of forget about, um, including the digital records and the paper records and any other material that we collect or generate as as part of these archaeological field investigations that you've talked about in the past. Another another aspect of archaeological curation, I think, from a federal perspective, that we kind of forget about is is that, um, and which is really one of the reasons we're kind of having a curation crisis or curation challenge, is the is the federal involvement in that in that archaeological curation process um, and being um, good managers and good stewards of of those of those um, collections. So you've mentioned uh, an issue that that obviously perks one's ears when you say the crisis in archaeological curation. What do you mean by that? Well, from our perspective at the at the core center of expertise for archaeological curation, over the past twenty years, we've um, people in our office and staff members in our office and, and myself also have um, done a number of of curation, what we call curation needs assessments for uh, federal agencies, um, including the Corps and Department of Defense, where we actually went out and evaluated, um, visited all these curation facilities and evaluated and assessed the condition of the collections and also the condition of these repositories. And the things that we see out there um, are are at times um, hair-raising. You see you see, you know, dead rats in collections in boxes um, that look like, they look like textiles. They're mistaken for textiles. You have People telling you stories that coyotes are are coming into your these remote facilities in the Southwest to come in to get a meal from mice um, of mice and 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 to get a nice dinner um, in these remote areas. You have um, you you have coffee cans and chicken boxes being used to store collections, um, cigar boxes. Um, you've got mice making homes in in um, these boxes and using the paper from the um, the paper bags for part of their nests. We've seen all of these things. Now, granted, those aren't those aren't things that are they're all over the country, but there aren't things that 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 we aren't addressing and we're starting to address now. But those are things that over the past 20 years we've seen. That's one of the that's one of the challenges that we have is to correct that. 
Um, the other challenge that we have is to find appropriate space to care for those things. Uh, Frank, you've been working on curation for a really long time, and you have sort of, I think, a, a pretty comprehensive historic perspective on on how how this problem or this crisis, how did it get to this point, and and what is the timeline, and and how, how did how did we get to the situation where basically Chris is telling us that that these. Uh, repositories are falling into neglect and that essentially um, some of these artifact collections certainly have never been looked at and have just been fallen into disrepair. Where? How, how did this happen? Well, um, archaeologists, uh, as for as long as archaeologists have been doing excavations or digging, so that's, you know, over a century in the, in the United States, collections have been created because when, when you excavate or do a survey, you're collecting artifacts or samples or specimens or, or something like that. And one of the distinctive things about archaeology is that you're also making notes. You're writing down where you found it and what you found with with the, the various things, what their physical context is, <clears throat> excuse me, because that's what you use to then interpret the, the, uh, the remains that you're finding. So the process of doing archaeology <clears throat> results in the creation of collections for Many years, for decades really, <clears throat> because there was not a lot of archaeology being done, the amount of material that was being collected was not, not very large. And many times a, a state museum or a state university was able to uh, accession those, those remains into its, into its collections. And so uh, the, the amount of material was, was, was still something that could be, could be dealt with and handled. Now, that wasn't always the case because sometimes the archaeologists were more interested in digging than they were interested in doing the analysis and the laboratory work and then the, the preparation for preserving the collections that also needs to be done as part of, of proper curation. But in the 1960s and 1970s, there were a series of environmental laws passed one of them being the National Historic Preservation Act, another one being the National Environmental Policy Act, which required that various aspects of the environment be taken into account when a, a public project was, was undertaken. And one of the aspects of the environment that had to be taken into account were the archaeological resources. So when there is a large number of public projects, and many of them uh, – involve some kind of archaeological investigation, suddenly you had a, a real explosion of amount of material, both the physical remains and the records related to them, that was suddenly being created as part of this environmental um, uh, planning and, and caring, ensuring that important archaeological sites weren't destroyed by highways or sewer systems or other types of public public activities. And that we all agreed that was a good thing. Unfortunately, in regarding the collections, the the archaeological community really wasn't prepared to deal with all of the material that was generated. As as Chris said, the collections include both the physical remains and then the, the records that are associated with them. And much of that that material started to pile up, literally in uh, repositories of one sort or another. And unfortunately, because many of the archaeologists felt that they needed to move on to the next field project, which was pressing, 
and it didn't take the time to do the, the curation work or the collections analysis that needed to be done as well, we ended up with a, a large amount of material that, that really wasn't being looked at very effectively. And Chris, people like Chris and, and the center there in St. Louis and Danielle and the work she's done, done with uh, pressing the case for archaeological curation have done a great deal to move us off this, the, the notion that this is a crisis and into the notion that this is just part of the work. This is just part of archaeology, and it's a challenge for us. It needs to be done. It needs to be taken into account in all of these projects. <clears throat> but we just need to do it as part of our as part of the job. And you're saying that this started to become a crisis, or if we call it that, in the '60s. What was it, what was done before that, or were there, was it just sort of improvised? You ran an excavation. I mean, archaeology was clearly being done uh, in the early part of the 20th century, and certainly promoted extensively during the WPA, during the Roosevelt administration, when there was a lot of work done. And how how was the curation element of excavations dealt with uh, prior to the uh, institution of uh, National Historic Preservation Act and NEPA? Well, some of it was done uh, effectively, but, but even then, I, I have to say, I think this is true, Danielle and Chris probably can comment uh, more specifically, uh, but even, I think, in those WPA projects, the, uh, the curation and the analysis end of it suffered uh, more than the, the carrying out of the, of the field work. So, <clears throat> One of the critiques, in fact, of the WPA and that whole New Deal set of programs that did use archaeology as make-work projects to put people back to work during the, the Great Depression at that period uh, did generate sizable collections. There were large excavations done. And um, one of the critiques of that whole program was that the oftentimes the collections were neglected. They weren't uh, properly uh, cleaned. <clears throat> analyzed, described, and then used for an analysis. So even then, there was a problem. Um, I think it, it was, you know, a later, later on, 30 years later, when the, the volume of, of material increased substantially, that people began to talk about it, it as a crisis. In part, it was just recognition. Uh, I think okay. that, that, you know, at that era, in, in, in the, the more recent times, people began to realize, hey, why are we doing these excavations if we're not actually going to analyze the, the results? And I want to get into that. I want to get into that in, in greater detail, but we have to take a break at this point. So let's uh, take a few minutes and uh, we'll get back and discuss this whole uh, trajectory between uh, archaeological fieldwork and the uh, curation process and try to figure out how that evolved in historic perspective. We'll be back after these words. the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787, Hello? and ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. 
Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business talk. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Listening to Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to joseph.schuldenrein at gra georg.com. Now, back to the program. And welcome back to the program. This is Joe Schuldenrein, and we are talking about archaeological curation in this episode of Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. It's a topic that's not widely discussed among uh, even avocational archaeologists and professional archaeologists, and it's one of the hugest, one of the larger problems that we have to confront. We are digging up sites at record pace, and yet the artifacts and the findings of these sites don't necessarily get the care and attention that we give to the actual process of excavation. I know, uh, Danielle, bringing you in on the discussion, I know you have some very clear feelings about that situation and the fact that the uh, impetus and the, the major emphasis on archaeological research is involved with the excavation process itself, and yet the attention paid to the artifacts is sort of... Uh, cuts sort of a raw deal, if you will, in the process. Why don't you give us a perspective from somebody who specializes in the curation element of, uh, of the archaeological process? Sure. Yeah, I think it's important to first kind of start with a historical perspective. How did we get here? And so if you look at the history of, of curation and archaeology in this country, it, it, it first begins with this museum era where archaeologists are making the collections and caring for or curating the collections. So they're doing the entire process of archaeology. And then the discipline of, of archaeology becomes professionalized, and a lot of those archaeologists leave their posts uh, at museums and move to universities. Okay? And what happens is they train the first generation of professional archaeologists. And in so doing, they encourage their graduate students to go out and, and excavate collections to do original field research. And well, so- let, me, let me step back on that. Are sure. you talking about what's going on now or what was going on 10, 15, 20, 50 years ago? Where, where, where are we in historical perspective on this? That is sort of how I, it's still going on today. It's still okay. very much going on today, but it really started going back when the discipline of archaeology becomes professionalized. So I think that there's a difference between how the archaeology and, and curation, and both Frank and Chris have pointed this out, is really a process. It's a, it's a process from the field to the repository. And there's a difference between making collections and caring for or curating collections. And now there is, but there, there wasn't at one point. It used to be that the same people who created or, or excavated collections also cared for them. And it really changed. We really kind of are on... We really did, and we still are on sort of two tracks of this process of archaeology. One track that really focuses on excavation and making collections, and on another who 
is caring for collections and is at the repository or museum end. Okay, well, let's discuss that at greater length. Um, Frank, uh, based on your uh, long career working in this situation, are we saying that, yes, we do the proper excavation, uh, we take the artifacts out of the ground, we define the context? My question to you is, do we do enough analysis and then store the pieces in repositories and abandon them, or do we not do the analysis appropriately, or do we leave them for future generations? How is that working, and how has that changed? Well, I think, uh, as Danielle indicated, it's working in some places and not and not working very well in, in others. I, I do think, across the board, within the discipline of archaeology, there's far more attention given to curation uh, than there was uh, well, when uh, when I started, so you know, thirty or thirty-five years ago, and and probably more than when Chris started twenty or so years ago. Um, so so there's been some improvement, but it's a there's a lot to to do, and um, because we are <clears throat> regularly generating new collections, it's oftentimes difficult to go back and take care of the of the existing collections, and. Uh, so, so there's a there's a there's a challenge there as as we've all we've all recognized. But I think there is more attention being given to ensuring that there is appropriate curation at the end of a of a project than there than there has been in the past. It also varies by project. There are <clears throat> certain projects that are, you know, they're, say they're they're much larger, and maybe there are more resources available to be devoted to ensuring that the proper kind of laboratory processing and the proper kind of artifact and, and collection documentation occurs and that good analysis is done. So, uh, you know, all of that is to the, is to the good. Um, but I think we also want to encourage archaeologists who are engaging in, in research activities to do something that Danielle mentioned, which is, in fact, utilize the collections that already exist and uh, go back and conduct analysis on those collections uh, as opposed to going out and digging a new site uh, when, it's, uh, when there's, no, you know, there's no reason to, to dig the site other than that somebody wants to go out and do some, and do some field work. So, um, I think that's an important uh, direction that we want to encourage graduate students to to move in. I, and I have to say, here in the in the program that I'm working in now here at Arizona State University, there are a couple of graduate students who are working on dissertations right now, dealing with southwestern material, and um, and in one case, southeastern comparing southeastern and southwestern material, and both of them are are using collections. And they're using, in fact, they're using some information that's in, uh, that's from the records, not actually going back and looking at the physical collections, but actually using information, digital databases and uh, analyses of past investigators, and they're pushing them in different directions. So I think that's, uh, that as well is the kind of thing that we want to encourage more of. Uh, and Joe, I can follow up on with Frank because, you know, uh, we've seen um, in in all these visits that, and assessments that we've done um, around the country, um, we've noticed that 
there's a lot of lot of certain types of materials that just are left in their paper bags and are not analyzed and are not studied. Um, and in a sense, if you think about it from a compliance point of view, from have you have you finished all the work that you should be doing for your archaeological contract? You really haven't finished because you haven't looked at those. So we have um, we've kind of taken an aggressive approach here in, in St. Louis and in the center to try to identify and start to work on some collections. Um, so case in point, 200 boxes of firecracked rock um, from a core district that were collected, but they've never they were never really fully analyzed. Well, we had a contractor go through those materials and pull out the diagnostic material, those things that weren't firecracked rock, those things that got missed, um, the points and uh, the faunal remains. They pulled those things out. They also went through and analyzed the firecracked rock, and then they they discarded the other materials that was left over. Um, it it's proper to do that, um, and we should be looking and doing those. And, and as part of um, teaching and, and as part of master's you know, theses and dissertations, we should be you know, getting students and, 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 and pushing students to look at old collections like that. Um, and it, it's a cost-benefit for the government from our point of view, and it's going to be good for the universities. It'll be good for the student. Those are things that we need to be we need to be pushing, and those are the innovative things that that we can be um, we can be working on. This is this is kind of intriguing. Let me play devil's advocate for a minute. You know, we have always, as professionals, uh, sort of poo pooed what uh, what artifact hunters or pot hunters, as we call them, do because they go out into the field and they dig willy nilly and they take the artifacts themselves and our primary criticism is it's not the artifacts themselves that are of, of concern and interest it's where they came from and the magical word context it's where it was found the position in which it was in uh, that was that is the most critical information for uh, reconstructing prehistoric or even historic lifeways so what you guys are sort of hinting at is we in some cases have that situation even within the professional community where we have all these bags that sort of show up and have been stored for 20 30 years and people really don't know what they what they represent because the context is gone so uh why don't you elaborate on that can we retrofit can we look at the records and the artifacts uh after all this time has been gone and the uh, the appropriate identifications weren't made immediately after excavation chris well, if, if the if a lot of the field notes aren't there, and and that's a big problem that that we've noticed is that we we don't necessarily have all the field notes and the field records um, that go along with the artifacts. Most of the artifacts um, that we've noticed have some sort of um, provenience information on them, some locational information, so they're they are still useful. Um, and so they can be looked at. I don't. I don't think we're at the point like the the, the backyard hunters are, but um, we we do need to we do need to be more diligent. I can say from the 1920s on up to now, we all need to be more diligent in the profession about keeping our records and understanding that your records are not necessarily your records unless you did it for purely academic reasons. If you did the work for a federal agency or a state agency, those records, um, you need to keep good records, field notes and maps and everything, and those records need to go with the artifacts. Um, that's part of the profession that um, is still a pretty tough nut to crack right now. 
So the documentation you're saying in most cases it's at least somewhat usable and 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 we should be much more uh, rigid and diligent in, in providing that documentation, especially keeping in mind that some of these collections won't be looked at for quite some time. Correct. Correct. Yeah. I mean, Danielle may have some other insight from you know uh, University of Wisconsin and what she's seen up there when she took over. It. It. You know, I was just thinking as you were talking. The, when I go into the field and I train students in, in excavation, the first thing we spend a significant amount of time on is the records. It is the most important part of the project because essentially when we do an excavation, you are, you're, you're destroying an archaeological site. And the only way to reconstruct that site in the laboratory, in the repository, is through the records. So it is incredibly important, and I, and I find, unfortunately, with a lot of the collections that I am maintaining and managing here um, in Madison, that many of the older excavated collections going back from the 1940s and 50s are lacking, you know, strong field records and notes and maps, and believe it or not, something as simple as illegible handwriting. You don't think about these things when you're in the field, but it, it, it's so crucial. And not having the records or not having legible records is, is, a, is a major problem here, as I'm sure it is at other universities that are, are managing collections that are 60, 70, 80 years old. I want... I want to get back to this topic in, in much greater detail after we uh, take a few minutes for these words. We'll be, we'll be back on this critical issue of archaeological curation in a few minutes. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to joseph.schuldenrein at gra-goarc.com. Now, back to the program. Thanks very much. This is Joe Schildenrein back with you on our uh, curation episode of our program, Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. I would put a premium on uh, our discussants' uh, emphasis uh, that they're placing on the curation aspect of archaeology. And personally, having been in this field for this many years, I would like to say that the awareness of curation at the front end of archaeological planning is such a critical issue 
issue and one that I think will help us going forward uh, as we try to navigate our way through these huge collections of museum pieces that, to to our chagrin, are not uh, maximally documented and which are just sort of sitting there. Uh, Danielle, as, as one of the people who has sort of a progressive perspective on this, why don't you walk us through an excavation from the perspective of someone who is curation-oriented and who is geared towards the artifacts and what happens to them following the excavation, and give us your bird's-eye perspective on how excavations should be done and how you've handled them in your part of the world, which is uh, Wisconsin. Sure. I think that... Um, my position here as curator of anthropology is is unusual in that I see the entire process of archaeology, including curation, through from the field to the repository. And I and I think I bring with me a perspective that I gained in graduate school, which was being trained in a program that had both a field and a repository component to it. And so what what I do is is and and, and I and I think there's others out there that are that are doing this as well. But it, but you you have to realize and that the process of archaeology and curation begins before you even get into the field. It begins when you're doing your your you know sampling strategy for excavation and 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 thinking about how much material are we going to excavate? Do we have the space to care for this stuff in the repository? Are we going to be collecting things that we're not going to have the time to analyze or the funding to analyze? And so I think it's coming at the, the process of, of archaeology with the back end in mind, you know, the, the final process in, in mind. And it's, it's asking and answering these questions about what is my ethical responsibility caring for this stuff once I've, I've taken it from the ground especially if I'm working at a site that I am currently right now, that is not, it's not threatened, and by that I mean it's, it will probably be there tomorrow. There's not a new housing development going up or something like that. And so I think that what I try to do, and the beauty of my, my position and, and why I enjoy it so much is that I do get to work with students and train them <laughs> in that whole process as well and, and get the students that are in you know, really focus on archaeology, thinking about how do we consider caring for this stuff before we even excavate it. Right. I guess my question on this, and we've discussed this on several programs before, that's a nice situation, one in which you can do this kind of planning. But let me direct these questions to uh, to Chris and then later to Frank. As you both know, um, most, the overwhelming amount of archaeology that's being done, certainly in North America, is not in a situation where a housing development is not planned. It's in an area where some impact is projected, be it federal or private. So do, have we done enough to build curation statutes into scopes of work? And have we done enough or are we doing enough or are we moving in the direction of doing sufficient work to make sure that curation is part of the process in larger projects or even smaller projects? Yeah, I'd, I'd like to say that we are. Um, and I'd like to say, you know, all around the core that we're, we're doing that. I think, you know, it's an awareness issue. I think that we, we are much more aware than we used to be, and we are making strides in those areas. And I think, I think some people are, are better at doing it than others. Um, I think at times the tempo, um, the speed at which we have to do certain things, um, just 
precludes people from thinking thinking clearly through and 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 focusing on the curation if they had the mindset you know that Danielle has when they when they get uh, a project or they have um, something come onto their plate from planning um, or from operations um, if we if we had that mindset like her thinking you know and again I think it's an awareness it's a it's a culture change that um, we're in the process of of of, of affecting culture change in a sense within the archaeological and anthropological profession it takes time um, and it takes weeding out um, the old timers um, like me and you joe and frank um, and getting people like danielle um, and getting those universities and those museums um, and getting those people engaged um, and around the country like her Um, i don't think we're doing a very good job of it right now but i think we're getting better but if you're in a position where uh, your office is dispensing with certain scopes of work or issuing pr- projects, I'm assuming that you're building a building a curation component into the scope of work. Yes, it's, it is getting built into 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 all the scopes. That's true. Frank, give we, us a pr- we, give us a perspective I, on that. Well, uh, I was just going to say, I think um, the the situation is a, a little bit complex in that. The, some of the people who are in charge of, of programs who might, you know, be looking, have their, their eye mainly on the bottom line, they see curation and therefore the collection of artifacts as a, as a big price tag. They see it as a, a, a cost that they may not be so interested in, in paying. So on one hand, you do have certain places, and in, and in fact, Arizona is one of them, where for some kinds of projects, uh, people have instituted what they call a no-collections Policy. So, they may go out and survey. That is, look for look for sites, look for archaeological remains on a on an area, say where there's going to be a uh, a timber cut or uh, there's some kind of project going in. And instead of collecting what they see on the ground, the artifacts and, and things, they will simply make a note of it. Maybe take a photograph and leave the artifact on the on the ground. Sometimes that may work, but in many cases it doesn't because that piece may get picked up by some passerby at another time, and therefore we've lost that some information about the archaeological record. So, um, curation, the curation issue is is a, is a complex one, and I do think that uh, well, it is clearly something now that. Almost every archaeological project, when a when a scope of work is put together, there is some some line that is that is included in the budget for curation. The the problem is what kind of thought has gone into that uh, creating that that budget estimate, and have they, like Danielle is advocating, properly given it um, thought to how much they need to collect to answer the question at hand. Uh, because uh, if you can limit the the amount that you collect, uh, not only do you limit the amount that you have to curate, you also save the archaeological record if the site is is not endangered or if that portion of the site is not going to be destroyed. You're not digging part of the in situ archaeological record just to create more more collections. So I do think it is more in focus. As archaeologists are planning projects, uh, sometimes it gets uh, out of focus because, as Chris said, of the speed that something has to be done, uh, there's not enough time to carefully consider these issues of sampling and 
what do I really need to take out of the site in order to understand the site, in order to evaluate its significance, and to document it, it effectively. All of those kinds of things need to be done, and as Danielle said, they need to be done before you ever set foot in the field. And uh, I think that is happening more frequently, but it's not, it's not, a, perfect, it's not a perfect system at this point. Danielle, let me get back to you on this issue. I mean, as, as we've discussed, a lot of these projects do have timelines and do have priorities and, and require sort of, uh, if not hastily made decisions, certainly decisions that, that have to be made in, in a time-efficient manner. How do you build in the curation aspect at the front end when you're, when you're, you're uh, if not racing against time, but you know that there's a finite limit to both the m- amount of money and the time that you'll be able to devote to the site. It's difficult to do. It, it really is. But I think that people that are in positions, archaeologists that have been in positions long enough, know now that they often are racing against the clock. It's just the nature of cultural resource management. Um, there's project deadlines and they come up quickly and you have to work around construction schedules. And so I think with enough experience in sort of the style of the work, you get better at knowing which questions to ask. And most of the time, a lot of the key questions that you need to ask before you go into the field are going to be the same kinds of questions. So we've kind of talked about them how much material can I generate? What does the budget allow us to generate? What kind of, of, of sampling strategy am I going to am I going to employ? Uh, what what part of the site do we want to? You know, if you have a project where a site's going to be destroyed, do you really need to excavate the entire site, or can you get by with with a, a sample of the site? Because Ultimately, a lot of people ask me this question, and that is, why do you excavate it if it's going to sit in a storage facility somewhere, dead storage it's often called, and nobody's going to see it or use it, or collections are inaccessible? And so it's a conundrum, but it's, as Frank said, it's something that is a challenge, but it's, it's, it's a manageable one, I think. And and it's one that that you're saying more and more researchers are trying are starting to sort of front end load these questions into the system, and they're making if not uh, if not a comprehensive plan, they're certainly designing a strategy uh, under which they're going to incorporate the artifacts and their storage into the into the uh, research plan. Correct. Absolutely. I think we, uh, you know, it is a cultural change in the discipline of archaeology, as both Chris and Frank have said. I think it is changing. It just it, These things take a tremendous amount of time. And I think it's really going to change more and more when training the new generation of, of, of archaeologists becomes, you know, they're sort of a change of the guard. Um, it really takes educating the students that are in undergraduate and graduate programs in both museum studies programs and anthropology and archaeology programs. There's a major disconnect right now, but I think that more and more we'll see progress in this, in this area when we start training the, the, those that are making collections and those that are caring for collections. 
And uh, we will be back with our last segment and discuss this entire question of uh, sort of a, a possible conflict between those who actually do the excavation and those who do the curation and how they can meet uh, somewhere half halfway and, and reach accommodations uh, as far as the sort of the destiny of the project ultimately uh, reaches its end. And we'll be back and address that question in a couple of minutes. the experts call toll free right now 1-866-472-5787 Hello? and ask our all-star team to answer your question that's 1-866-472-5787 thank you for calling voiceamerica.com if you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between, discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to joseph.schuldenrein at gra-goarc.com. Now, back to the program. We're back. This is our final segment on our special curation episode on our program, Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeologies. During uh, the break, we got into kind of a heated discussion amongst ourselves as to what the uh, nature of the process of archaeological contracting and archaeological research and follow-up should actually sort itself out into. And Chris, you had some interesting ideas on how the process Projects should actually be scoped, and what the what attention should be paid to the various aspects in the process. Uh, why don't you elaborate on that a little bit for us? Yeah, heated. I don't think I was heated. I was passionate, um, but that's just no. Me. You were heated. You were heated. You know, excavation does not equal curation. Everything that you excavate does not have to be curated, and 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 that's something that I think really we need to get get that point out. But looking at it from the from the federal perspective, we always have to write scopes of work and for the archaeological investigations, and everything has to be included in that scope of work. What they're going to do from excavating to analysis to report writing and then to curation. And you just can't. It's hard to put a to pinpoint, as Frank mentioned earlier. It's hard to de, it's hard to determine what those curation costs are going to be, and how much you're going to how much you're going to excavate, and how much you're going to curate. We really need to be looking at at, at scoping these projects in in two ways, and that's the excavation analysis and the reporting, and then step back and say, okay, what do we have? You know, what have we pulled out of the ground? Because we had a smart excavation strategy, correct? So, what do we pull out of the ground, and what do we have, and then what do we need to curate? And 
and, and bring in the professionals that you need to to analyze that material, um, the material, you know, people that, that are experts in those material classes and those material types, and have a have a second scope, have a second contract to deal with just the curation aspects of of those um, of those um, excavations. That's going to take educating, I think, a lot of contracting offices because they're the ones that are going to have to say, yes, we can do this, and this makes sense. Okay, let's step back for one second, and Danielle, I'd like you to chime in on this as well. So we finished the first part of the contract, the first part of the scope of work, which is effectively do your work, do your analysis, do your report. That's the first part. Let's get into the nuts and bolts of the curation, which would be the second part of the contract. Danielle, take us through that second part. Sure. Well, then every archaeologist or agency is then responsible for the curation or long-term care of, of the artifacts. And what happens is that the agency or archaeologist is responsible for finding a repository in which to deposit the collections. This gets kind of tricky because every every different repository or a lot of different repositories have different standards in which the collection should come in. It's called curation-ready, or the collections, quote, curation-ready. And so they, a lot of repositories already have standards in which the collections are supposed to come in the door. If they come in the door that way, then they, they get, um, you know, put on the shelf and then entered into a database to keep track of. And, um, and, and it's great, and, and things become accessible and Years later, researchers could come in and use them, et cetera, et cetera. Well, a lot of times collections are coming in the door and they're not quite curation ready. And it, it often can take a tremendous amount of time on the part of the repository personnel to, to rehab them and make them so that they are appropriate for long-term storage and care. Um, the other part of this is it's really hard on agencies and archaeologists who are dealing with a, a, a lot of different repositories and therefore different standards for how things should come in the door. And so I think one of the solutions of this is to really consider potentially standardizing how, how curation is done. Okay. When you say curation ready, what do you mean? When I say curation ready, I, I'm talking about one, the physical control of the collections and the intellectual control. So the physical control of the collections is, are objects packed in materials that will encourage long-term preservation? So that's often you'll hear the term archival or acid-free. Are they packed in boxes and bags and packing material that will enhance the the long-term life, so to speak, of the objects housed within? That's sort of uh, the number one. Number two is, are the records up to par? Are they are they stored digitally and are hard copies available as well? Um, and so it's it's sort of everything that encompasses are the collections physically stable, and are they ready to come in and be be housed in a repository in a in a stable way? And then of course the second part that intellectual control is: do we have the reports? Do we have all the field work? Do, field work notes? Do we have the maps, et cetera? all of the things that help us with that context you were talking about, where objects came from so we can actually make sense of the things that we actually have. So when I say curation ready, I'm talking about preparing the collection so that they become usable. 
Frank, let me let me ask you a question in this regard because you've been around and you've been dealing with this issue for a really long time. Do we have faculty who are now ready to deal with this changing perspective on the balance between archaeological excavation and the curation process? I mean, do we have people who are now ready to jump in and instruct students towards the significance of curation going forward? That's a good question. It depends on where you are, I think, and uh, to, to a large extent whether where you are is a place that has uh, a repository of some sort. So, for example, at Wisconsin, uh, where Danielle is, there's obviously somebody there who can uh, provide this kind of this kind of training and these sorts of insights to, well, actually, frankly, to both the archaeologists and the curators, because uh, there's there's uh, uh, obviously responsibilities on both on both sides of this. The the museum staff who are ultimately going to care for these collections and make them accessible and provide, uh, you know, their monitoring and ensuring that, that they are, are safe and, and sound, uh, they need some uh, information about how to handle archaeological data. It's different from artwork, for example, for the most, for the most part. Um, at the same time, as we've been discussing for the, for the, the last uh, 45 or 50 minutes, uh, archaeologists clearly also need to know something about the the end of the project uh, cycle and and how to ensure that uh, as analysis of the artifacts and the data are wound down, those artifacts and the data that go with them are organized in a manner that makes it e- an easy transition into a, a repository of some sort. So. Uh, some places uh, have that that kind of uh, of, of expertise uh, because they've been in the business of doing that uh, historically. Others have uh, developed it because maybe they've gotten involved in uh, contemporary cultural resource management work. But it's not a it, you know it's not a comprehensive coverage. Uh, there are places. Uh, Unfortunately, there are places in the United States where you could go and uh, get a you know get good training as an archaeologist, but not uh, encounter that particular kind of uh, of information or or uh, find yourself in in positions where you could learn about those those sorts of things. And just as a yeah, go ahead, Chris. Please. I can say from a federal perspective, you know, we don't we we don't necessarily want to have want every university to curate federal collections. I mean, it may sound bad, but you know, if we want to try to have some cost savings to to how much we're going to be paying for curation, and we're gonna we're gonna see those cost savings by reducing the number of repositories where we're curating materials, which reduces our administrative oversight. You know, there are a number of really good university facilities, and then um, facilities that are uh, associated with state agencies, there are probably, you know, 15 to 20 really good top-notch facilities around the country, um, like the University of Wisconsin, like, you know, the Burke Museum, like the Glenn Black Lab. And, I mean, there are a number of these places, you know, even... Um, at San Marcos in Texas, um, they're they're starting to you know they're starting to implement curation programs and collections management their courses and they want to get into that. So Texas State is starting to um, get into curation and collections management, and there are people that are starting to do this. Those are the places where the where 
from a federal perspective, we really want to put our emphasis because they're using the collections, they're teaching the students, and they're 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 using the collections in a way for research, for education, for academia, for you know tribal access, um, and and that's where we want to put our focus. I think. And we're starting to uh, develop a cadre of faculty who are uh, oriented towards this and have the necessary knowledge and experience uh, to promote it. Uh, Danielle? Well, I think it's happening slowly. I think that um, you'll see a big change in when the sort of old guard is retiring. I think that that's going to happen in the next 10 or 15 years. So I think... It's slowly happening now, but when newer, younger faculty get hired in anthropology programs across the country, I think you'll see it more. Because we can't, in a sense, really fault the archaeologists that have held their posts for a long time, because a lot of these standards just weren't there 30, 40, 50 years ago. And so, you know, you kind of have to take it with, they just didn't know. Um, there's a little bit of that in there. There is just sort of a, a, um, a, a naivete a little bit. But I think that um, it's changing, but it's changing very slowly. And I think that there's many, many programs out there that are Ph.D. and master's programs in anthropology that are not. They don't have a single class that is focused on the curation aspect of archaeology. And on that note, I think we're going to have to wrap it up, sort of a mixed message. Uh, yes, we're advancing, but uh, we haven't quite done enough. At least I think we've succeeded in bringing the curation issue to the forefront. And I want to thank my guests for uh, encouraging the discussion and for bringing this to the listenership's attention. Uh, we're going to close this episode, and thank you so much, and we will see you next time. Thank you. Thanks again for tuning in to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Please join us for another unique journey into the past next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. In the meantime, think about the past with an eye towards the future and a better tomorrow. Tomorrow.